an angel. Jonah looked at them, white-knuckled, clutching the steering wheel. He was within fifty yards of the car in front of him, but felt himself losing ground in his race against evil. He opened his eyes wide and summoned the face of his last victim in that young man's last moments, hoping the image would sober him in the way the memory of nausea and vomiting can sober an alcoholic, making repugnant the bottle that beckons so seductively, promising relief and release. Nearly two months had passed, but Jonah could still see Scott Carmody's jaw drop open, utter disbelief filling his eyes. For how can a weary traveler, feeling lucky to get help with a broken-down Chevy at the side of a desolate stretch of Kentucky Highway, believe the raw pain of his cut throat or the warm blood soaking his shirt? How can he make sense of the fact that his life, with all the momentum of a twenty-something's hopes and dreams, is screeching to a halt? How can he fathom the fact that the well-dressed man who has mortally wounded him is the same man who has spent the time not only to jumpstart his car battery, but to wait fifteen minutes with him, to be certain it will not die again? And what minutes? Carmody had revealed things he had spoken of to no one. The helplessness sparked in him by his sadistic boss, the rage he felt clinging to his cheating wife. Opening up made him feel better than he had in a long, long time, unburdened. Jonah remembered how a plea had taken the place of the disbelief he had seen in the dying man's eyes. It was not a plea for the answer to some grand existential why. No, the plea was purely for help, so that when Carmody reached for Jonah, it was neither to attack him nor to defend himself, but simply to keep from collapsing. Jonah had not stepped away from his victim, but closer. He embraced him, and as Carmody's life drained out of him, Jonah felt the rage drain out of his own body, a magnificent calm taking its place, a feeling of oneness with himself and the universe. And he whispered his own plea in the man's ear, Please, forgive me. Jonah's eyes filled with tears, the road undulated before him. If only Carmody had been willing to reveal more, to give Jonah the reasons why he could be victimized by his boss and his wife, then he might still be alive, but Carmody had refused to talk about his childhood, like a man keeping a locker full of meats all to himself, keeping them from Jonah, who was starving. Starving like now. His strategy was backfiring. He had truly believed that summoning memories of his last kill would keep the monster inside him at bay, but the opposite was true. The monster had tricked him. The memory of the calm he had felt holding death in his arms and another man's life story in his heart made him crave that calm with every cell of his white-hot brain. He glimpsed a sign for a rest area half a mile away. He straightened up, telling himself he could go there, swallow another milligram or two of Haldol, and put himself to sleep. Like a vampire, he almost always fed by night. First light was just three hours away. He veered off Route 90 into the rest area. One other car was parked there, an older model metallic blue Saab with its interior light on. Jonah parked three spaces away. Why not ten, he chastised himself. Why tempt the beast? He gripped the wheel even more tightly, his fingernails digging into the heels of his hands. Half against his will, he turned his head and saw a woman in the driver's seat, a large map unfolded against the steering wheel. She looked about forty-five years old. In silhouette, her face just missed beauty, her
her nose a bit large, her chin a bit weak. Crow's feet suggested she was a warrior. Her brown hair was cut short and neat. She wore a black leather jacket. A cell phone lay on the dashboard. Just looking at her made Jonah hungry. Ravenous. Here was a living, breathing woman whose brain held interests and abilities that were mystical and immeasurable parts of her. Of her. A being like no other. She harbored likes and dislikes, fears and dreams, and, this more than anything, traumas that were hers and hers alone, unless she could be coaxed to share them. He looked away, hoping another car would enter the rest area. None did. Why did it always seem so easy, almost prearranged, even preordained? He never stalked his victims. He came upon them. Was the universe organizing to feed him the life force of others? Did the people who crossed his path come in search of him? Did they unconsciously need to die as much as he needed to kill? Did God want them in heaven? Was he some kind of angel, an angel of death? His saliva started to run thicker in his mouth. The throbbing in his head surged as though a dozen drill bits inside his skull were powering their way out. He thought of killing himself, an impulse that had visited him before each murder. The straight razor in his pocket could end his suffering once and for all. But he had made only meager attempts on his own life, shallow lacerations to his wrists, five or ten pills instead of fifty or a hundred, a drunken leap from a second-story window. These were suicidal gestures, nothing more. Deep down, Jonah wanted to live. He still believed he could make amends in this life. Beneath all his self-loathing, at the core of his being, he still loved himself in the unconditional way he prayed the Lord did. He flicked on the BMW's cabin light and sounded a short blast of his horn, nauseated at secreting the first sticky strand of his poisonous web. The woman startled, then looked over at him. He lowered his passenger window not quite halfway, as if he wasn't sure whether to trust her. The woman hesitated, then lowered her own window. Excuse me, Jonah said. His voice was velvety and deep, and he knew it had a nearly hypnotic effect. I know this would be, uh, asking a lot, but, uh, he stuttered intentionally to sound unsure of himself. My, uh, phone, he said with a shrug, kind of died. He held up his cell phone. It was silver and looked pricey. He knew most people trusted others with money. I'm a doctor, Jonah went on. Left the hospital about four minutes ago and they're paging me already. Any chance I could, uh, borrow your phone, I'd be happy to pay you something. The offer was his way of leapfrogging the woman's better judgment by transforming his request for the phone into the question of whether she ought to charge him to use it. A generous person would offer it for free, which, of course, required offering it to begin with. Go ahead, she said. Evenings and weekends are no charge. Thank you. He got out of his car and walked toward the woman's door, stopping a respectful distance away. Partly to trigger her instinct to nurture him, partly to discharge the electric energy coursing through his system, he shook his head and shoulders as if freezing. She reached out, handed him the phone. He stood facing her, letting her take note of his quilted suede coat, his sky-blue turtleneck sweater, his pleated gray flannel slacks. Nothing black, everything soft to the touch. He dialed seven random digits and held the phone to his ear. 
He spoke loudly to be certain she would overhear him. Dr. Renz, he said, then paused. A fever, how high? He paused again. Let's start her on some IV ampicillin and see how she does. He nodded. Of course, tell her husband I'll see her first thing in the morning. He pretended to click the phone off, then knocked quietly on the car window. She lowered it. All set? He had obviously finished using the phone. Her question meant she wanted something else from him, even though he doubted she would be able to put into words what that something was. He felt a stiffening in his groin. All set, he said. Thank you so much. He held the phone out. Maybe I can return the favor. You seem uncertain where you're headed. She laughed. I seem lost, she said. He laughed with her, a boyish, infectious laugh that broke the ice once and for all. The beast was fully in control. Where are you trying to go, if you don't mind my asking? Eagle Bay, she said. Eagle Bay was a small town on the Adirondack Railroad, close to the Moose River Recreation Area. Jonah had hiked nearby Panther Mountain. Oh, that's easy, he said. I'll scribble out directions. He had chosen the word scribble to conjure the image of innocence. I'd appreciate that, she said. Jonah felt as though he had sufficiently weakened her defenses to push past them. The average woman lacked the internal resolve to protect her boundaries, except in the face of obvious danger. And this woman could not see him as an imminent threat. He was handsome and well-spoken. He looked wealthy. He was a physician. He came around the front of the Saab, hugging himself. Walking around the back might make her wary. He waited beside the passenger door. She seemed to hesitate, then reached across and pulled open the door. Jonah climbed in. He held out his hand. It trembled. Jonah Renz, he said. It must be ten below, with the wind chill. Anna, she said, shaking his hand. Anna Beckwith. She looked confused as she let go, probably because Jonah's hand felt warm and clammy, not cold. Do you have a pen and paper, Anna Beckwith? Jonah asked. Speaking her name would make them seem less like strangers. Beckwith flipped to a blank page in her address book and handed it to him. Jonah noted that Beckwith wore no wedding band. He started writing out random directions to nowhere. Stay on 90 East to exit 54, Route 9 West. I take it you're not from around here, he said. She shook her head. Washington, D.C. Are you a skier? he asked, still writing. No, she said. A hiker? I'm just visiting a friend. Boyfriend? he asked, matter-of-factly. College roommate. Let me guess, he said. Mount Holyoke. Why would you guess a girl's school? Beckwith asked. I saw the Mount Holyoke sticker on your back window when I drove in. She laughed again, an easy laugh that showed the last of her fear had melted away. Class of 78. Jonah did the math. Beckwith was between 45 and 46 years old. Why girl's school? he asked. I really don't know, she said. You chose it. He pushed, smiling warmly to take the edge off his words. I just felt more comfortable. I just felt more comfortable. Jonas stood at the threshold of Beckwith's internal emotional world. He needed to buy enough time to cross it. Do you know Route 28? He asked. I don't, Beckwith said. No problem, Jonas said. I'll draw everything out for you. Without thinking to, he drew a line up the page, then another shorter line intersecting it at a 90-degree angle. He noticed the rudimentary cross on the page and took it as a symbol that God was still with him. 
Hadn't Jesus absorbed the pain of others? And wasn't that Jonah's aim, his thirst, his cross to bear? Why would a co-ed campus have made you uncomfortable? He asked Beckwith. She didn't respond. He saw a new hesitancy in her face. Sorry to pry. My daughter's thinking of Holyoke. He lied. You have a daughter? You seem surprised. You don't wear a wedding band. She had been studying him. She was coming closer. Jonah felt his breathing begin to slow. Her mother and I divorced when Carolyn was five, he said. Then he delivered Beck with this talisman, harvested from Scott Carmody's soul. My wife was unfaithful to me. I stayed longer than I should have. That fabricated self-revelation was all the license Anna Beckwith needed to begin revealing her true self. I was always shy with boys, she said. I'm sure that's the reason for Holyoke. You've never married, Jonah said. You sound so sure, Beckwith said playfully. Jonah kept writing out his haphazard map, not wanting to interrupt the stream of emotion flowing between them. Just a guess, he said. You guessed right. I wasn't exactly marriage material myself, he said. I had two brothers, she said. Both older. Maybe that. I don't know. Jonah heard a whole world within the way Beckwith had said the word older. There was resentment and powerlessness in it, and something more. Shame. They made fun of you, he said. He couldn't resist looking at her again. He watched her face lose its mask of maturity and become open and innocent and beautiful, a little girl's face. He thought to himself that he could never kill a child, and with that thought, the pain in his head fell off to a dull ache. They teased me quite a bit, she said. How old were you? She shrugged. Ten, eleven? And how old were they? Fourteen and sixteen. Beckwith suddenly looked anxious, in the same way Jonah's other victims had as if she didn't understand why she would share such intimacies with a stranger. But Jonah needed to hear more. What names did they call you? He closed his eyes, waiting for her emotional wound to ooze the sweet antidote to his violence. They called me. She stopped. I don't want to go there. If you could just give me the directions, I'd really appreciate it. Jonah looked at her. The kids at school used to call me faggot, wimp, things like that. Another lie. She shook her head. From the looks of it, you've really shown them. Nice of you to say. He looked out his window as if pained by the memory of his childhood traumas. They called me Prissy Pussy Pants, Beckwith said.